there to be there. Very conservative time. They, the driver came for me. So I had quite a lot of time. Went into an um, eating area. Not a very comfortable place to rest, but it was reasonable. There was uh, chairs. And I was looking for the plugs that you can plug your computer in, which are becoming very prized items in airports these days. And um, I found one with a vacant rocking chair with a woman whose computer was attached to it, and next to her, somebody on the video who was also attached to it. There were only two holes. So I sat next to this woman in the vacant chair who had also her ears engaged. And, um, and I said to her something like, can I share your plug some of the time? And so she was furious, and she was just really angry and frustrated and Oh, I suppose if you really have to, why don't you go and get one of those forks and you can divide it and then we can do it without you, something like that. So I said, it's okay. I don't, I don't have to. I've got a battery in my thing, but just thought, wonder how long you'd be here. She gnarled, gnarled at me. Anyway, I sat there and got my computer out and did my thing. And, and um, after a while, I don't know how long, because we were all there. Turned out she was on the same flight. She was equally delayed. She'd been there earlier than I had, so she was thoroughly uptight. And um, and I was fine. And I said, okay, you know, I'll just use this. It was the sweetest thing. She became the sweetest person. We had a really nice time after a while. She was full of apology and because I didn't get into any kind of, I didn't care, you know. And um, it was, it was what was the point I'm trying to make is that I watched her go from owning the plug in the airport, you know, it's my plug and you can't have it, and who do you think you are, and to... Um, just reflecting on herself, to softening, to thanking me for not getting irritated back at her, and then being interested in where she was going, and we ended up being quite friendly. It was just lovely to watch her shift. And I know it was that I didn't get irritated by that stuff of hers. It just was the simplest thing. I was in an okay space. I'd just come from a retreat. It had been lovely. The people in the retreat had gone through nine days of transformation, as you, a lot of you know how that works. And, uh, and so... I wasn't in an irritated state myself and didn't need to contribute to it. And it was just, it was like the simplest thing in the world, but it was like this magical transformation of this woman. I just watched her go through all this change. And I did nothing. That was the point. <laughs> I didn't do anything about it. It was great. So it isn't like this is bells and whistles and choirs of angels, although they can be there too. It's kind of ordinary to be connected, to be okay, to be steady. It isn't like a lot more. It's mostly less. It's the absence of the usual clutter that we have that allows this opening to happen. And of course, all of this practice, whether we're doing Vipassana practice or this kind of loving-kindness practice or all the different practices people do, it's all, of course, in service of becoming free from the struggles that we find ourselves in all the time. So when you reflect on being around somebody who may be a really wise being, I mean, some of you may have access, spent time with really, really very awakened beings, or some being who doesn't necessarily known as being fantastically awakened, but in times when they are 
they're just friendly. They're so available. They're so sweet. It isn't that they're kind of awesome and the earth's shaking. They're just normally lovely. You feel so relaxed around them. You feel so, it's everything's okay. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to dress up and do it right. When you're in the company of some free-ish or free person, everything's fine. It's, it's so peaceful. Our reaction is peaceful. I don't know why I'm starting on this line of my talk, but we use so many words which can be so easily inflated. Wonderful, beautiful, lovely. I love the word lovely, I have to say. But some of the words to describe the heart and its purity can feel, I think, a little beyond our reach or something to aspire to that's grandiose or fantastic, which in one way is wonderfully inspiring, but in another can feel like, oh, you know, I'm just not good enough for this, or when will. It can easily actually undermine the whole awakening process and set it into this um, goal-oriented achievement kind of thing, which it isn't at all. As soon as we do that, as soon as we're looking for some extraordinary bright lights, we've set up ourselves separate from an object, and then we, we're, we're in our normal, confused, subject-object, needy reality. It's so simple, this whole freedom experiencing. One of the one of the helpful ways to think about this journey that we're on or this exploration that we're all doing, trying to to undo the knots that keep us confused and stirred up and needing is to have time to reflect on what really is important. What really matters for me? Because the knots and the confusion and the swirling are maintained by erroneous value, by placing value on the things that aren't really that valuable. But when we don't take the time to reflect, we just assume their importance. And so we keep having to do the usual things we have to do, and we have to appear a certain way and consume a certain amount and keep continuing with our education, whatever the things are, you know, that we, we get on sort of the track and we have to keep moving through. We're sort of compelled by the ways of the world. And we need to keep, keep taking time out and reflect what really, what really, really matters. It isn't, it isn't fantastic stuff that really matters that are the most valuable things in our life. It's the simple things that really matter. It's honesty, for instance. It's, uh, it's time for each other. What are the things which, if we were ever in a position, and some of us are able to, it, it's just beyond our control, and some of us don't have this opportunity to look back over one's life 
at the end or late in one's life, what are the questions that really matter then? What has my life been for? You know, what, what's, what have I really valued in this time? It isn't possessions, it isn't achievements, it isn't acquaintances, it isn't fame. Many of you will have heard being here at Spirit Rock, you know, Jack's phrase of, have I loved well? Being able to be grateful to somebody for being in your life and them you. Just as uh, Sylvia was saying that, that first night on Sunday night last night, was it just last night? <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, about her, her messages after the days of the storms, <laughs> her messages of friendship from her family and love. So it's very, um, it's so special. I just want to, to uh, underline the rarity of having this opportunity to have some time to reflect. You know, what really, what really is my life about, you know, in this kind of quiet and this kind of support, and this extended time to just do this, these things. We're actually giving all of our attention to the sweetness of our hearts, which is this, the greatest wealth we'll carry through our lives, really. It's amazing. This is the investment we're making. We're investing in the thing of the highest value, a heart that's as clear and tender and available and uncluttered with need and fear and wound. A place that we can trust, we can actually rest with clear conscience, that can respond beautifully to any situation. What an amazing investment. What an incredible possession. And yet it's so, we just so, we just don't give it the time in our lives. We just don't stop for a moment and think, what really matters here? It's, I think it's just an incredible thing to celebrate that you all honor it so to give up your week like this. Hmm. So we can um, rest in or be nourished by this kind of view of ourselves, this kind of view of life. We can bathe in the beauty of just being able to familiarize ourselves with kindness. It's extraordinary. When I go back through the border, you know, I'm always coming out of Canada into the States back and forth doing this. And many times the, the uh, customs folk, because, you know, the, I've got all these stamps in my passport and, they, and I always have like nothing to declare. You know, you, they, and many of them was like, you didn't buy anything? And I, well, what did you do? <laughs> they just, you know, and you just say nothing really. <laughs> I don't have never tried to explain them a meta retreat. I sometimes will try and explain, you know, of a pastor. You're just sitting, you're calming down, your mind is becoming clear, but you know, you're spending all day long reflecting on loving everybody. I just, I don't know what they would do to me if I said that. <laughs> As it is, they kind of go, go on. <laughs> Ramana Maharshi talked about this, this practice of the 
loving and tenderness of the heart. He said, if the mind is happy, not only the body, but the whole world will be happy. So one must find out how to become happy oneself, wanting to transform the, transform the world without discovering one's true self is like trying to cover the whole world with leather to avoid the pain of walking on stones and thorns. It's much simpler to wear shoes. It starts right with this, and it's simple. Meet the woman in the airport and don't get upset because she's so gnarly at you. Very doable. Hafiz, one of my absolute favorite um, mystical poets, Persian from 1400, said, a man comes to his teacher for affirmation, describing a powerful vision of God. The teacher says, hmm, and how are your goats? Your family? Your kids? Parents? The measure of the value of your vision of God is revealed in how you care for all the creatures and beings in your life. Right here. Anything. Anything we encounter that we need to deal with, how are you right here? It's so accessible. Not this far away, fantastic, someday if you're good enough and you do this practice over and over 10,000 times, you'll have a glimmer of God. Simpler, more, more accessible. How we do this, where our life leads, the details, we don't know. It's a mystery. Far too many conditions need to come together for anything to occur that's, that we can sort of see and describe. All we need to do, what's our part, the simplicity of this, is this aligning of ourselves with these true values, with what actually matters. What do you really want to invest your energy in. And then the unfolding, the details happen. We don't know the decisions whether I should do this job or that job and which is the best livelihood and people in my lives and stuff. It's hard to actually apply this to specifics, but we need to just tune into where are, what really, how do we want to be feeling. And uh, life unfolds along, it's like a river, it's mysterious. We don't know quite where it will take us. We're floating. We're not driving it, we discover. But what happens as we keep looking truly, how is my heart, how is my mind, what's really here? As most of you know, most of you have been practicing Vipassana practice to some degree or another. We start seeing... the condition of our heart. We start seeing our struggles as they just keep showing up. As this process happens, sooner or later, the stuff that we start seeing that shows up, that's, that's cluttering, that's causing the struggle, goes from being my stuff to being our stuff. We begin to realize after some time, and some of us have to see our stuff over and over and over, that it's just human stuff. It's just the, the struggles that humans go through. 
It's just the needs and the wants that humans have. When this shift begins to happen, this is the manifestation of wisdom. Because when we go from being self-concerned, we, we, we're already expanding and we are no longer preoccupied with having to have myself be a certain way. We, we're already beginning to relax and know that we humans aren't anything like what we thought we were. We're not in charge. Our agenda isn't the best way. Having our various egos' needs met doesn't in fact create happiness. It creates more tangle. And as we allow that and realize this, there's this quietening down inside. And there's this um, understanding of each other effortlessly in a way. It becomes sort of normal to realize what the other person's going through instead of having to make a big effort. As I said in the beginning, it's kind of a journey that's less than we think. So when there's a, a sense of ease or freedom or we've let go of a lot of the se sense of self and struggle, it's like, well, of course you'd do that. Like, of course you wouldn't get into a big fight with a woman at the airport. What's the point of that? Like, why would you? Recently I was on retreat. This is a little tiny example, but it's a clear example. I was recently on retreat, and I was in Gaia House in England. I like practicing there. I like the surroundings as much as anything. And um, it was this time of year. It was, um, I was on retreat through November into middle of December this year, last year. And um, at that time of year, of course, things are going into hibernation and slowing down. I was doing walking practice in an upstairs hallway, and there was this wasp, lazy, sleepy, yellow jacket wasp, sort of crashing into things and crawling on things. And I'm walking up and down, and I noticed the wasp, and there was a, a window nearby. I took the wasp, and I put it out the window. I was outside the bedrooms of one section where I was, and my thought was, if I don't put that wasp outside, it'll probably fall asleep, and it could easily be in somebody's bed. And here are a couple of empty rooms, and a new people will come in, and then somebody could get in bed and squish the wasp. A, that would hurt the yogi, and B, that would hurt the wasp. So I should put the wasp out the window so that doesn't happen. I didn't love the wasp. It wasn't like, oh, darling wasp, you know. <laughs> oh, it would be so tragic if you, you know. <laughs> I just simply, it was the appropriate thing to do. It, it wasn't any grander or greater or difficult or requiring effort than the appropriateness of understanding. If it's sleepy looking for a hole, it could find a place where it would get hurt. There's such a simplicity in this, such an almost ordinariness, such an accessibility in this. Take care of your goats and your children and put on shoes instead of trying to fix the world. Simple life, doable life. I wanted to compare a little bit more how um, metta and vipassana are similar and go together. The first thing I want to say is a some of you may well have read this. I wonder who did. There was an article in last fall's Inquiring Mind 
that was about, um, it's all along the lines of the um, science of the mind that's happening these days in researchers. And, and it was about how the mind, turns out, is wired for nervousness. Did anybody read this article? We're, we're traditionally, it's how we've survived so well over the millennia. Um, we're wired to be nervous and jumpy. We're wired to look out for and be ready for trouble. Not just trouble, but because we have to negotiate through space, and, you know, we have to be mobile, we have to look out that we don't trip over things or bump into things or get in the way of other things and um, things are going to come our way and we need to make sure they don't come in too fast and hit us or hurt us. And just the vulnerability of being what we are, sensitive you know, with flesh on an irregularly surfaced earth and mobile, we need to actually be ready. Turns out that our brains register threat or potential accident bumping into something so instantaneously compared to, when, to pleasant things. When we experience pleasant things, lovely things, it takes about 20 seconds. Whereas when it's something that's a potential, you know, we might trip over this or something's coming, you know, something of a bird dives over and you immediately do that ducking, it's instantaneous. Our amygdala and hippocampus are absolutely prepared for potential risk and not just prepared, but remember that. So when we see that a second time, we, we have that in, in us. This is how we're actually, how we've evolved. Whereas pleasant things register in our systems through the normal memory system, not that instantaneous one. And so they take a lot longer. All of this goes to show that we are prepared for and on the lookout for difficult things far more than lovely things. So we need to put a little more energy into opening to and make, being available to and appreciating the good things and the lovely things. We pick up so easily the difficulty. So when you look at yourself and how your mind works, and here you are having lots of days to look at how your mind and your heart works, what you'll discover is a lot more tendency to be critical than tendency to be loving. So this it seems it's, it would seem so much easier to be nice, you know, as it feels so nice, and we say it's so natural. But actually, it is natural, but it's also natural to be defensive and to be edgy and nervy and ready to assume there's a problem. So we get into a lot of conflict, even if we don't pursue it very far. It's natural also. I find that extremely reassuring. And it isn't just that I'm, you know, negative, more negative than the other person or more critical. It's how we've survived so well, actually. It's deep, deep in our in wiring. So to um, rewire ourselves, our brains, to give value to the deeper, safer openings which happen when we discover we don't need to be as nervy and jumpy and defended as we think we ought to be, takes calming down and keeps honest looking so we can see the unnecessity of how much nervy jumpiness we normally have. We have to see how much we're doing that and feel the 
cost of doing it and how exhausting it is to keep always trying to negotiate the world outside and have it be safe and have it be okay. It's exhausting. As we see that, we can begin to relax more. And as we relax more, we realize it's much easier to be trusting than it is to be guarded. It takes so much more energy to be worried and skeptical and guarded. But it's how we've always done it. So we practice. This is why practice is required. If it were, we could just think our way through this or just change our view. If it was as simple, we would all be waking up rapidly. So we have quite a lot to contend with in our makeup. So there are two aspects to meta practice that I want to mention. And one of them is that um, it, as with Vipassana, especially as we're training in these things, um, it's developing, it's a training of the mind, the heart side of the mind. And the training is in um, steadying, stabilizing, deliberately keeping the mind in one mode or on one track, rather than its tendency to, what about this, what about this? Jump as it normally does, the jumping mind, the monkey mind, the normally nervous mind. It's soothing and calming, but it keeps it steadying. So concentration, it, part of concentration is looking at or focusing on something, and it could be many things, but it isn't about the smallness of the thing. It's about the steadiness of staying, attending to whatever the thing is. So just making sure that's clear, because we often confuse the idea of concentration as focusing very narrowly, very narrowly, rather like you know looking through a microscope. A mind that can look through a microscope has the ability to be like really one-pointed is a form of concentration. But concentration isn't just this tight stillness. It's um, a mind which is well-behaved. I like to think of it like that, a mind which is a disciplined enough mind that it will do what we want it to do instead of think random, crazy, upset, angry, critical, whatever thoughts that we didn't really want it to do at all, but it's just doing because it isn't ours. It's acting un poorly behaved, badly behaved. So what we do in the training is to give it things to do and encourage it over and over and over so that it, uh, it's just like training any, you know, training dog obedience training or horses or children to learn or yourself being, you know, tr practicing your yoga or practicing your ballet or playing an instrument over and over and over in order to become, um, a, have great facility at something. So that's what the concentration aspect. And here, loving kindness, it has like a double action concentration because A, it's giving ourselves something to do over and over and over so the mind settles down and becomes better behaved. But the thing that we're doing is lovely. And so we want to do it. It's got this lovely taste to it, reassuring. I'm going to leave, leave a little quote here by uh, Einstein about this. From the age of six to 14, I took violin lessons, but had no luck with my teachers, for whom music did not transcend mechanical practicing. I really began to learn only after I'd fallen in love with Mozart's sonatas. 
The attempt to reproduce their singular grace compelled me to improve my technique. I believe, on the whole, that love is a better teacher than a sense of duty. So in this way, as we practice metta, it's, it's compelling because it's such a, a loveliness, not just the breath, for instance, which has great value and is very accessible and reveals a lot and so on, but we don't love it the same way. And a piece of this, too, in using metta as a training for the mind and the heart to become steady. Um, And because of its lovely qualities, these various aspects that we're bathing in and nourishing and encouraging for ourselves, it's uh, reassuring, it's soothing. And so it's so appropriate whenever we are struggling, which, because of our wiring, is a lot of the time in all kinds of ways. And so uh, it's very healing as a concentration practice. The other aspect of it is that it's in a much, um, if you think of it in much broader than simply a useful training so this mind becomes well-behaved so it will be able to look and be interested in and tolerate the things that we, in our wiring, don't want to go, don't want to deal with or get agitated by. In a broader sense... Um, the uh, metta is the actual state of the heart when one is liberated. When you're around a beautiful, free being or somebody who's in that moment not manifesting any small uptightness, that friendliness that I talked about, that's what metta is. They are living. That's why we use the word abiding, divine abidings. The divine ones abide in the state of connection, of caring, of sympathy, of understanding, of compassion, of happiness, and all of that. Steadiness. So, when we're doing our, our meditation training, we're actually doing it in the way we want to become. We don't want to become free and open and kind and practice grimly and with great striving and a lot of judgment and frustration because that's not, that's, you're rehearsing the opposite. So we want to be mimicking freedom, rehearsing freedom by being the way we are when we are free, which is metta. So it's the flavor of all of our training, all of our practicing, all of our exploring we need to, to make it the most effective in a way, behave in a way, look in a way, practice in a way, be in a way that is in alignment with the freedom that we are seeking. So all the flavor of our vipassana, for instance, needs to be from kindness, from caring, from patience, from gentleness, from encouragement. doesn't need to be soppy and weak because there's a strength and a stability and a commitment to be go, keep going, be inspired, but not to do it with you know, too high an expectation that falls us into judgment and frustration or, or doubting that it's not possible. There's confidence and warmth with metta. So it's these aspects which enrich and not just enrich our vipassana, but um, bring the true depth to the vipassana that can be overlooked if we think of a vipassana practice as technique or 
wanting to understand a certain form of practice, it has to be enflavored with the way a human being is when she's free and he's free. Another piece about practicing metta, which is so brilliant, is our tendency not just to be wired for defense, you know, which we are so. Um, the tendency is in that for us to, it's how we work, is to focus on things, things, events, people. I'm here and there's an event, there's, a, there's something going on, here's a person, here's an object. Very, very the dual world, subject, object, subject, object. As one practices one's spiritual practices, whichever they are, understand more, see more clearly the way we function inside, how the mind works, and so on, we begin to realize that it's much more interesting, and in fact, much more liberating, to notice how we behave around these objects and people and events than the events. Actually, it doesn't matter what events are happening, who's at the airport, what the issue is, whether whatever's coming our way, if I am struggling with it, I'm not free, and if I am okay with it, freedom is there, regardless of the weather, regardless of the people, regardless of the conversation, regardless of the situation. But usually, because we begin untrained to keep noticing this is good, this is not so good, I like this, I don't like that, the external things, it takes time for us to realize we need to be noticing our own response. With metta, we're focusing on our own response right off the bat. So it's, I think that's brilliant. We do get hung up, and you'll notice as we go through the week, other people in your groups or in question time, perhaps, or yourself, most likely, thinking about the external parts of metta. What about this person? Should this person be the benefactor? Are they good enough for a benefactor, but they've died? Should I not use this person? Or what about this phrase? Or what about the order of these phrases, which is the way we are normally untrained? We're focusing on these externals. As we become confident with this and as the practice takes root in us, it, doesn't, it isn't so much about the words, the people, the order. They're, they're sort of accomplices to help us do the practice. The point of the practice is the opening of the heart. And we are looking at that right from the beginning in this practice. That's very clever and very effective and helps cut through that subject-object attitude and way of functioning that's so ingrained in us. Some people say Vipassana takes things apart and metta puts things together. And Nisargadatri, Nisargadat Maharaj, a number of... uh, I don't know if any of you who visited him the last century in uh, India, I didn't. He said, the mind makes the abyss, the heart crosses it. It's the connecting. It's the, the part that allows us to be with and be comfortable with what's happening, this heartfelt practice. He also said this other quote that so many people quote, which I'll quote, so beautiful. When I see with wisdom, I am nothing. 
there is no I when I see with wisdom clearly. When I see with love, I am everything. That's the difference. It's like the connection rather than the separation, which, of course, is where we struggle. So I want to now say a few things about what the meta isn't, what it's not, and what we can mistake it for. So especially as the beginning of the retreat and as we get going. So some of the dangers inherent in this, in this practice so that we don't fall into those if possible. Um, it's not about getting a pleasant state. We think it is. That's very seductive. We have a pleasant state. We feel tender. We feel warm. We feel connected. It feels so good. And that's what we think is good metta. And that can so easily then seduce us into looking for that. And then when that isn't there, feeling like, oh, no, I've lost it. Oh, I don't know how to do it. I thought, I was, I thought I'd really got this together, and it's all gone out the window now. And it's that person's fault because they've been sniffing beside me, and I'm probably getting sick. And we can, you know, we can really spin out when we get attached to a particular, thinking it's a particular state in ourselves. It's, it's more becoming familiar with the heart. And sometimes the heart is tender and warm and connected and flowing, and sometimes it isn't. And it isn't right and wrong. It's knowing the language of the heart and treating that language sometimes where the heart is open, sometimes where that is closed, with metta. What's your attitude to the state of your heart? Just as in Vipassana, it's like we experience something and then we realize our relationship to that something is what we're starting to notice, and then our relationship to our relationship to that something, like knee pain, and then it's like aversion to knee pain, and then it's kindness to aversion to knee pain. We're always stepping back, stepping back. It's the same with metta. So stepping back from the actual state of the heart to be aware of that and hold that with kindness, whatever that is. So it's that same moving away from rather than identifying and getting caught in what the experience is in that one moment. The word I didn't say, but what that is implying is how we so easily judge. Not as trying to evaluate or assess how it's going. Don't judge your practice. How many times have you heard that? Do it. (laughs) Keep doing it rather than evaluating it. The other thing, another thing to mention, to be aware of, um, just as in Vipassana, Vipassana practice, looking at what's here, looking at how I am with what's here, stirs up various things. Things become revealed to us. Where One of the ways a number of you know I've said this, it's like as we calm down and the mind settles and we look more clearly, the horizon of unconsciousness lowers and material that was hiding in the unconscious becomes revealed. It's the process. It's exactly the same with metta. And so as you do look at your heart and the state of it and get more and more familiar with it and as it softens and as it opens, stuff that we haven't been able to open to before, we are able to. And so now we're going to be having feelings that we didn't even know we had or memories that have loaded feelings that we didn't realize we thought we got over that years ago and so on. And so it's inevitable in the process of opening that we open to who knows what in the way of other feelings. So that's normal process, nothing wrong. Then, of course, the actual 
being kind and caring is applied to whatever this new state is that's coming, not to expect it to be. We're not going from troubled states to nice, serene, loving, perfect, you know. It's not that kind of journey any more than Vipassana is like that. The capacity to befriend what's happening, that's wisdom, that's freedom. A value, as I mentioned, of this being able to bathe in tenderness and caring is both soothing and nourishing, but can sometimes, not even just the loveliness of it, but just because it's so pleasant, it can be like a lullaby. And so it can actually make us very calm and very drifty and not notice very much. So, which is very nice sometimes to have some time that's calm and soothing. But sometimes that can become a sort of dull drift. And just the same as in Vipassana, we want to actually be really bright and present and clear and know what's going on. Be aware that as the mind gets calm and concentrated with this sweetness, it can be like lullabies, lulling us. So we can learn as we practice it how to um, shift our energy, how to adjust our attention, how to change from one person to another, how to change, not necessarily change our phrases because we are wanting steadiness and concentration, but when we become dull, how to open our eyes or to stand up, just as we do when we do Vipassana practice, how to adjust the energy. Another thing to say, and this is an interesting exploration as you go through this, what do you actually mean? What do you believe in you? What are your beliefs around love? What does love mean to you, loving kindness? Because what it's not, again, just about the dangers of this, it's not, as I've said in the very beginning, earth-shattering angel choirs, juicy, dramatic, romantic, exciting feelings. It's quieter and simpler and friendlier and more normal than that. There's a great little quote that I found about this. Um, Oscar Wilde said, the sentimentalist is the person who wants the luxury of an emotion without paying for it. (laughs) It's not a sentimental kind of love. It's not a Hollywood kind of love. It's not tears coursing down your face kind of love, necessarily. Sometimes it, it feels very opening in that way. So that's not that that's not what it is. But don't go looking for you know lots of emotive experience don't be tempted to believe that strong emotion means love i don't know if i have a quote with me i don't think i have but there can be that very powerful strong attached connected evocative kind of state there can be um, more of a a sweet, appreciative kind of state. There can be even a cool, friendly state. There can even just be a simple ability to stay with in degrees of cooling, all of which are metta. So don't be seduced by the bright lights of Hollywood in this practice or the deep depths of great passion and compassion and huge suffering either or great grief. 
Those things happen to all of us sometimes, but we're not looking for that high drama here. So it might be an interesting thing for you to reflect on from time to time. What do you actually believe love is? What are your beliefs? And make sure that they, they aren't overstated or misstated so that you don't find yourself in this practice looking for something which isn't findable or isn't necessary. Some wise teacher said, it's just like feeding yourself. You hope for nothing in return. You just do it because you care, that's it. And then I think I'd like to share this last piece about what was happening for me in my most recent retreat just a few weeks ago um, about metta and an understanding I came to about metta, which I really appreciated and love to share with you. Um, I was able to recognize in myself that when my heart and mind were not at peace, there was, in fact, mostly there a sense of doubt. And the doubt was oftentimes doubt that I was not okay, or doubt that how I was was not okay, and that I should somehow be slightly different or slightly more concentrated or slightly more steady or not think so much about planning, blah, 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 blah. So in observing my inner reality, I didn't trust that it was perfectly okay as it was. When I was in a state of any kind of agitation at all, and even the subtlest agitation, I could see that that's what was going on, was like, come on, Heather, no, 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 no. was doubting my okayness. I was doubting that the way I functioned or the way things were or the way somebody was was completely okay. I had something to add or change or something to do with whatever was happening in me or around me. And when I was in a state of complete divine abiding for X amount of moments, there was no doubt about that it was just how it was. The isness of it, the suchness of it, the simplicity of it, the okayness of it was clear and there was no doubt. And what helped me shift from one to another, oftentimes, of course, is just to recognize that inner commentary and the contraction of the heart and the struggle. But what helped me, and I, I played with this on this retreat a lot, was to go via metta. So I would recognize some struggle, some, you know, enough of this commentary going on, trying to do something. I would go and do some metta of some kind, and that worrying little commentator would relax and there would be no doubt. It was just so clearly associated. It was very useful to see. And so um, I just want to share with you some of the, what some of the phrases were that I, that I have used. And I, I'm offering these early in the retreat rather than later in the retreat because I don't want you to spend all of your next few days trying to get the perfect phrases. But as it's early enough, I wanted to just offer you some other variations, and particularly for those who are newer to this practice, um, to give you some, you know, just some sense of creativity around finding words or phrases or ways of saying it that you can resonate with if you maybe <coughs> aren't doing. 
And this, I just want to say, not to um, turn into the danger of trying to make your meta perfect or trying to make your phrase perfect or trying to anything, but just if you would like to have some other variations, I'll add some in. So my um, longer phrases, when I'm not so concentrated and wanting to be more present, I add more words. I say, may I be safe and protected from inner and outer harm, which is a completely traditional phrase. May I be truly happy, deeply peaceful. I think of myself truly happy equals actually peacefulness. I can relate to peace much more than I can happiness. Happiness for me can start getting a bit like a Pollyanna. Peace, mental happiness for me is actually a peaceful mind. When we did our um, thing with Sylvia last night and she said, which is your favorite of the benefits of metta? Mine was a serene mind. It's in this same area here. The next one I say when I'm doing a longer version is, may I be well in every way possible? rather than healthy, for instance, because what if I'm not? And so I like to say well, meaning kind of healed or whole, in every way possible, gives me a bit of a, so that if I'm you know, in some kind of way sick, then I'm as well as I possibly could be, given the fact that this is the material plane. That's my phrase, may I be well in every way possible. And may I live with ease and well-being, which is the very traditional fourth phrase. Sometimes I will put in, may I love and accept myself completely just as I am. I think that actually focusing on the heart is lovely. And sometimes focusing on the heart is a phrase I like, may I be my own best friend. Or may I be my own loving mother. Or whatever doesn't trigger you in the opposite direction, loving father. When you've experienced something or the opposite of something, and you want to create the loving connection, something like that, my own best friend. When I am really in the groove with my meta, and I've been doing it for some while, and my mind is getting quieter, I tend to go more for the actual essence of the phrases than the words, so many of the words. The words fall away or I drop them or something. So then it becomes, trusting goodness. The protection feels to me like being held by. And the, the trusting is the feeling that it's okay to relax and be safe. Sometimes it's goodness. Sometimes it's dharma. And funnily enough, I found this funnily enough because this isn't typical for me, in my last retreat it was the sangha. And the word wasn't so much the word, but I had this feeling of there I was in a retreat center where eight managers live for a, at least a year, completely taking care of every aspect of the house, where teachers come and go, where there's an enormous library of tapes of, of beautiful talks that have been given at that house, where retreatants come and go, and where long-term yogis devote themselves to this. And to be surrounded, just as you are in a place like this, I just felt so safe and held. Talk about trusting. And right across the hall from me, my room, was a young man, age 23, age 23, there for a year, one year, 365 days, taking one year out of his medical school training just because he wanted to have a spiritual dimension to his future career. Age 23? I mean, I always talk about, felt like trusting the Yusanga. So my near neighbor was very inspiring. 
trust in goodness, calm and peaceful, warm and tender, free. Those are my short versions. And so my be well somehow isn't there so much, and the heart has come in when I do my own shorter version. So this warm and tender is about my heart. And sometimes it just becomes trusting, calming, gentle, free. That last one is a very over, overarching wish for my last one, and it's, it's just really letting go, releasing anything, all struggle. I'll end with um, a poem, as is so often done here. So someone else's beautiful words to leave you with. St. John of the Cross, it's called If You Love. You might quiet the whole world for a second if you pray. And if you love, if you really love, our guns will wilt. Let's just sit quietly for a minute. Thank you for your attention. I hope it's helpful. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.